Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me as ever is cheesy pronunciation guru Thea Leonard Dutsey. Thea, as an update to last week's high-end intellectual discussion of cheese, someone tweeted us. I was so pleased to see this. Have you seen this picture? No. Someone has tweeted us with a picture of a large baby bell. Oh. thus demonstrating the function of the word mini in the smaller product oh, that I enjoy. Oh, I see. There is I had th- my suspicions, but is- I just, I bowed down to your evidently yeah. superior knowledge of, evidently, of that particular cheese. Evidently not. Yeah. I had mini baby bells. On, on which news you rushed straight out to stock up, is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I had it last night, mini, mini baby A large, oh, a mini one. Anyway, I, I'm not, I'm not... I'm not Keep disgusting. the large ones for yeah. the cheese board. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not greedy. Uh, do you think, it, do, should we be judged on our cheese consumption? Yes, yes. absolutely. Are you judging me yeah. right now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, I was delighted. And if you want to tweet pictures or anything to correct us... It doesn't need to be cheese related, I no. hasten to add. So, fact, so, please. Need, <laughs> do you think we need to move off this? Yes. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, if you want to uh, subscribe to the TLS, um, do Google as TLS subscriptions, type pod1 into the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the podcast today, as trailed now on two occasions, thanks to my ineptitude, we will be exploring the tricky philosophical territory of the mind-body problem. You're listening to this podcast using a fatty, yogurty organ. See how I keep the dairy theme going in your head. But where does your consciousness, your emotional sense actually reside? Our philosophy editor, Tim Crane, will be here to offer his solution of sorts and to guide us through our philosophy special edition of the paper. Shifting ground, we shall consider the world of Korean fiction, specifically books that tackle the issue of North Korea, that strange and often unimagined land ruled by a chubby despot with a basin haircut. Min Jin Lee has reviewed four books about North Korea and will join us to tell us more. And we shall end with a new poem, a translation read by the writer and artist and living legend Alistair Gray. How do we think? How does that wobbly bit of matter in our head lead to our consciousness? Easy questions to ask, and like all really good questions, impossible to answer satisfactorily. 
We know that the brain is causally responsible in some way or other for consciousness, says TLS philosophy editor Tim Crane, whose name so euphonically rhymes with the organ in question. But we remain utterly baffled as to how its fatty, yogurty matter could be up to the task. Tim illustrates the problem with a quote from a memoir about cooking written by Julie Powell. She says this, It isn't so much the taste with brains, though that's no great shakes, and it isn't the ick factor, the way when you wash them you inevitably wind up with bits of brain matter strewn Tarantino-esquely about the sink and your garments, and that weirdo gummy white matter that holds the brain together, which is sort of like fat, I guess. No, the real problem is the philosophical tailspin part. The inconsolable mystery of life, consciousness, the soul. I want a brain to be tightly knit and deeply furrowed, conduited with the circuitous pathways of thought and deep receptacles of memory. But no, it's just this flabby, pale, small organ that disintegrates in your fingers if you let the faucet run too fast. How can this be? How can we be? So come on then, Tim, answer that. How can we be? He joins Thea and me now. Tim, we're talking about the mind-body problem very evidently here. Why don't we start at the start with that then? What is the mind-body problem and what's the history of, of trying to solve it? Well, yes, it's, um, it's the problem of how our minds, our mental life, our thoughts, feelings, intentions, consciousness and, and so on are related to our bodies. And I think it really has, historically, I think it's really had two main components, two main parts, if you like. I think the first one is that if you think of the mind as something separate from the body, then it's a puzzle about how the mind can interact with the body. I mean, we think that you know our thoughts and our feelings and intentions and desires and so on, they make our bodies move. They make things happen in, in the world outside us. But how does that actually work if, if thoughts aren't the sort of things that can, you know, bump into brain cells and make things move? So that that line of thought leads you towards materialism, towards the view that everything is material, the mind is a material thing. But another line of thought leads you away from materialism, and that's the problem of consciousness. So when you look at the the brain, and as described in that beautiful quote from uh, Julie Powell, you, know, you look at the brain and you think, how can that thing be responsible for these wonderful experiences I'm having now, or these terrible experiences I'm having now? Just you know, so how can it be responsible for consciousness? and feeling and emotion and all the things that matter to us. And so, so on the one hand, the interaction between mind and body leads us towards materialism. We want to say we're just material things. But on the other hand, consciousness takes us away from that towards our um, the puzzle of how can we be just that bit of matter. Um, that's the sort of dilemma, which I think the mind-body problem is. I suppose the most famous person who's tried to, to solve it was, was Descartes. How did he manage it? What was his conclusion? He had a very radical view, although it was a view that was in, in harmony with um, a lot of the views, religious views at the time, which was that the that the mind or the soul was a completely distinct thing from the body. What he meant by a completely distinct thing was what he he expressed it by saying that the mind was a different substance, where a substance is something that can exist independently. So the mind can exist independently of the body, and therefore it's a separate thing. He thought, but it now, wasn't measurable or it wasn't touchable. No. It wasn't. It was. It was something that was simple. It had no parts. It just had this one characteristic attribute, which he called thought, which we would translate today as consciousness. I think, and the mind could survive its body's death, but it was united to the body in some way. And this was this was where he really came into all sorts of problems in trying to explain how how this immaterial thing could 
could move a material body. Does all of this sort of link in, for me, it does, does it sort of link into the impossibility of us imagining the existence of nothing, our inability to conceive of pure absence of substance? I mean, if something that is, because there's the term spatially unextended, yeah. which I find yeah. really interesting. We always have, there always has to be something, even even when there's nothing. But there, but there does have to be something, doesn't there? I think I think this is a this is a different question, although I think it could be connected. But I think it's a, that's a different question, more about the ultimate reality of anything at all. Um, whereas, so when Descartes said that the soul was spatially unextended, he he meant that it was not material because matter by definition, was what was extended. It had size and shape, whereas the soul has no size and no shape. But where does, I mean, it still beg, that, of course, still begs the question, what is it and, and where yeah. does it reside? Yeah. I mean, the, the cover yeah. image of the paper, we've got this lovely, beautiful, vibrant brain scan. It looks like a jellyfish in the sense of its sort of brightly mm. coloured lines. Everyone's kind of familiar with these sort of functional MRI scans where you see... Yeah. We were looking at pictures together, Tim, and there's a picture of an orgasm in it. You could see the lights lighting up in in the brain. And does that prove anything? Does that give us an answer where we can say, well, hang on a second, a thought takes place and a neuron is fired and and something chemical has happened because we can measure it by seeing these these colours change? Yeah, I mean, I think these these are amazing um, discoveries and have had amazing effects in certain areas, particularly in uh, in the clinical domain, um, also in, in understanding how the brain itself works. But I don't think it answers this question. I mean, Descartes had a rather extreme view. He said that the mind had no spatial extension at all. But even Descartes thought that things in the brain and the body were causally connected to what was going on in the mind. And we already know, I mean, as I argue in my article, that people already knew that some parts of the brain were responsible for some mental functions and some parts of the brain were responsible for others. So it's not as if the MRI makes any great difference to that. It just tells you more precisely, for those who are really interested in the brain, where things are going on. I don't want to downplay the importance of that. I just want to say that doesn't address the mind-body question because it's something that we knew already. Okay, so let me let me ask you a more concrete question lest I get lost in, in the vacuum of myself again. That was good. Um, how, how does... It how... we should have lava lamps and we should be sitting, it should be late night somewhere in... Uh... I feel like I have a lava lamp in yeah. my head. Yeah. Um, I should have brought a lava lamp. Your head is a bit like... Your brain is a bit like a lava lamp. Yeah. Mine specifically or just yeah. in general? Yeah, was that Thea's brain? Know, you're talking about our brains. All our brains. <laughs> okay, so why... Why does the discovery made at, um, at Addenbrooke Hospital in Cambridge in, in 2006, why does that represent such a key moment in all of this? Well, that, that was an amazing discovery because they discovered that um, uh, people in the vegetative state, uh, which was previously thought to be a state of complete unconsciousness or lack of awareness, actually their brain states were correlated very, very precisely with people with undamaged brains um, when they were being scanned, thinking about the same things. So they were asked, you know, think about playing tennis, and the same bit of the brain was activated in a normal person as the person in the vegetative state. Now, if you assume that the normal person was, you know, consciously imagining playing tennis or something like that, then it's irresistible to suppose that this poor person in the vegetative state was actually conscious to some extent too. So it was, um, that was an incredible discovery. And what does consciousness um, mean in that sense then? I mean, what are we supposed to, to conclude, that, that consciousness... Uh, exists whether we are aware of it or not. So if we are effectively in a vegetative state, there is something going on in our brains independent of our power to control it. Is that is that does that lead us anywhere? <clears throat> no, I don't think it's that. I think it's ra- it's rather that there's a difference between 
you know, looking for the outward signs of consciousness in the in the bodily movements and responses, and what is actually going on in someone's mind. So I think it's not that consciousness is going on whether we're aware of it or not, because I think um, consciousness is something that basically we're essentially aware of it when we're when we're conscious. So it's just that all the previous attempts to detect consciousness, which led people to think that the, that this was um, a state of complete unconsciousness, were not good enough because we found out that, that through brain scans that people could be conscious even when they didn't have these um, outward effects. Well, let's look at this about your approach then, Tim, because uh, we've rather rashly and with, in typical reductive fashion of my own sort of said you've solved the mind-body problem, you're going to solve it. As I understand it, you're going to tell me if I've understood this right, you, you're arguing that we should accept the existence of psychological reality yeah. of consciousness, even though we can't see it or touch it. Our thoughts are real in the same way as temperature is real it doesn't have a physical measure I mean, it doesn't have a physical thing you can touch but it's it's real it, it that's what you're making an argument for consciousness is a thing even though we can't see it or touch it yeah i mean that, exactly that's my point i mean i of course i can't say that's the solution to the mind body problem but we've got to get ourselves back on the right track rather than thinking if consciousness is something in in the material world, then it must be something we can see, and then we think, well, maybe it should be, you know, something in the brain, and then we can see our neurons in the brain. So maybe that's what consciousness is. Um, that's one extreme view. Or consciousness isn't anything in in the material world at all, and that's another extreme view. So that was um, Descartes' view. And what what we need, I think, is is a sort of realistic view in the middle, which is that. Um, when we talk about our conscious thoughts and feelings and so on, we're talking we're not talking directly about um, neurons in the brain. We're talking about capacities or properties of the whole person, um, of the whole organism or um, the whole animal, if you like. Um, and these are this is the place where we need to start. We need to accept that among the capacities or properties that organisms have are the capacity to reason, to think, to imagine, to remember, and all these things. And some of these are conscious. And now, that doesn't, that doesn't tell you what consciousness is, in a sense, but it's a step in the right direction. Does this matter? I mean, we are, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, because I think whenever you try and pause to, to consider these type of issues, you, you, you're left with questions you can't very easily answer in an in interesting way. But does, does, this, does it matter? Is this an academic exercise that we're engaged in here with furrowed brow trying to come up with? Is this almost a, is this almost a question of semantics? Well, what do you mean by mind? We, well, we actually mean just a consciousness that pervades throughout our existence and doesn't need to be located anywhere. It's just a semantic point, then, whether we believe it's here or there. Does this matter more broadly than that? Um, yeah, of course it matters, of course. I thought you were going to say it's no there, Tim, that would have been awesome also. <laughs> no, no, my whole career my whole career has been nothing at all. I'm, I've seen the error of my ways. I'm, I'm going off to, to become a footballer. Yeah, I was talking of football. I mean, David Coleman once said, I once heard David, the great David Coleman say that uh, the, about some moment in a football match, the question is academic, if not totally irrelevant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but however, this is, I mean, this is the question of what we are. What it is to be, what it is to be, the kinds of creatures that we are. Uh, what could be a more important question than that? It's a, it's a theoretical question, but I mean, in the in the case of consciousness, the, as the Addenbrooke's example shows, I mean, it, there are also practical and emotional consequences to it. But ultimately, it's a, it's a theoretical question it's about how we should understand the sorts of things that we are. And um, I can't think of any more important question. Of course, I'm biased because this is my life's work. Yeah. You know, to think about these things, but. 
Um, but you've got to have a, it's a long game, Stig, this one. It's a sort of, you know, you, you, um, it takes a long time. You need a lot of patience to uh-huh. come it, up with some simple truth. And but, all, of, all of this is different to accepting that there is something that we can't know, that we can't fathom. I think so, yeah. I mean, that could be one end point. You end up at the point at which you say this is everything is just a total mystery and we're never going to be able to oh, are fathom we heading, well, Are we heading nature. towards God here? Well, are, no, are, are I mean, I'm just saying, I'm just saying uh, no, I'm just saying every single civilization, society has an element of the unknown, whether it's mm-hmm. the gods that we're very yeah. familiar with or, you yeah. know, the Native American cultures that have um, the force that was there and was not there. It's something it, that we can't quantify and can't mm. understand because, or perhaps by not understanding it, we are understanding it. We're accepting it. Yeah, I think the the ambition and the or the or the hubris, if you like, of our post enlightenment culture is that we think we think that we can understand our own nature, yeah. and um, and I'm on board with that. You know, I, <laughs> I, I think we should be able to understand our own nature, but uh, uh, it may take a long time. Um, let's move on because it's a philosophy special in the paper this yeah. week, which you have uh, put together. Uh, we've got a review of several books about Nietzsche by yeah. Andrew Huddleston. Um, he's sort of a, he's a figure that many conjure with. What, what do we learn about him? What's the what's the the thrust of uh, of, of Andrew's piece? Well, I think it's a great piece, and it, it um, brings up lots of interesting facts about Nietzsche's life and about him as a personality and a. Um, as an intellectual, um, more so than about his philosophy, probably. But uh, it was fascinating to me to learn about these uh, moments in his life. I mean, there's um, one thing that Andrew focuses on in in, in the piece is the um, is a, a, a new book on um, Nietzsche's trip to Sorrento in um, 1876, which this um, the author Paolo Diorio um, is um, identifies as the moment when Nietzsche broke with. Wagner and the gloomy, miserable, um, pessimistic German philosophy of Schopenhauer, and moved towards more life-affirming, as we might say. This is a, this is a fear now, a sort of more Italian, perhaps <laughs> <laughs> southern, airy uh, fairy, affirmation, affirmation, and love of life. And he rejected Wagner, and who previously he thought that Wagner was the greatest modern artist and the sal- salvation of Germany, but. Um, uh, this this moment, 1876, was is marked as a sort of turning point in Nietzsche's life. It's brilliantly described by Andrew in the review, and the book sounds very interesting. He bit. switches to a, a, a more sunny southern disposition, which isn't exactly something that you you associate with Nietzsche. I mean, the, pop, the popular it, imagination. It, it, exactly, yeah, pr- probably I'm exaggerating a bit, but it was yes, more um, affirmative approach to but, life. But the question, than, yeah. the question the review also tackles is one which I think is always thrown up with Nietzsche. How anti-Semitic was he on the basis that an awful lot of anti-Semites really liked him, and of course he became a, a sort of posthumously, yeah. yeah. But but yeah. so the question is, has, is that an anti-Semitic prism through which he's looked at, or was that that sort of horrible tendency already built into him? Do you think? Yeah, I think this is all a matter of degree. I think that comes out in, in Andrew's review as well that um, people have associated Nietzsche with the anti-Semitism that came after him and. A lot of the influence of his sister and her sister's husband, who um, were quite vile anti-Semites. And the book under review that uh, Andrew talks about says that Nietzsche was an anti-Semite, but not not quite the kind, the same kind of anti-Semite as his sister and, and her husband Furster and, and the Nazis, of course. So Nietzsche, I think, you know, the the, the pendulum swings forward and backward, and um, people think Nietzsche was an anti-Semite, like and Nietzsche was a Nazi or something, in which he clearly wasn't a Nazi, but um, 
doesn't mean he wasn't an anti-Semite like many, many intellectuals of the, of the time. So, I mean, the argument being that he was he was anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish in the same in a sort of an institutional way. In well, the, it, the establishment it, was at that point. I think it seems to be more of a sort of just a, uh, something that's, that was, you know, regrettably a com- part of the common attitude of, of many educated people at that time. And the initial reaction to that, academics sort of trying to, to deal with, with this link to anti-Semitism, was to say that he, he wasn't political at all. Yeah, and I think that's probably an oversimplification. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure this, is a, this is a very, very difficult question to sort of just pin down is he an anti-Semite or not? I mean, he was an anti-Semite in some sense. But it's interesting that we care, isn't it, that um, that we yeah. we need we might feel we need him not to be that anti-Semitic. Because he is such because a figure. Yeah. Because he's such a figure yeah. and then either we over-apologise or we actually even understate exactly. the fact that if he was anti-Semitic as a product of his age, is it less culpable? It, we, we get ourselves into sort of moral knots here a little bit, don't we? That's a really interesting question about actually how we don't seems we don't really apply this quite the same moral standards to people in the past as we do to the to enlightened people in the present we think if they're a product of their age everyone thought like that mm. uh, what bernard williams called the relativism of temporal distance you know people in the past if we think of great thinkers you know like aristotle what were aristotle's views about slaves and so on yeah, you know, keeping yeah. people as slaves i mean yeah. We're going to have to move on, but just, just lastly, uh, Tim, let's talk about briefly about animals. Ian Grounds reviewed a book called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Yes. Is that you're answering the question? You, oh, we are. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's that done. Yeah, we'll, 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 well, we'll move on. No, are we? Uh, why is this interesting? Why, why do we? Um, why do we need to know? In fact, have we been blithely arrogant in not really wrestling with this question properly? Yeah, I think I think that's that's a good way to put it. I think. Um, We've been assuming that we that we know what it is for an animal to be intelligent. I think this is the, part of the thrust of Ian's review: is that um, we think we know what an animal, what it is for an animal to be intelligent. It's like it's to be like us, to do the kind of things that we do, and this can blind us to this distinctive kind of intelligences that um, that animals themselves have within their own world, so that they can communicate with creatures of other species. Um, way across species gap, gaps here, and um, uh, even if they can't satisfy certain tasks for intelligence that we set them based on what humans can do, like you know using tools with your fingers or something like this, maybe the an elephant test. isn't so good at that. Yeah, yeah the mirror test. My, my dog, I've got a dog called Biscuit, uh, who yeah. doesn't seem very intelligent to me in lots of ways. He's a lovely thing, lovely little thing, little Shih Tzu dog. He very often will see his reflection and bark at it as if it's another dog. And a couple of hours later, we'll do the same thing as if it's happening for the first time each time. Well, it, do, it doesn't suggest yeah. he's got an awful lot of consciousness. Well, or... no, but that's what do you yeah. think that means? How do you know? I mean, what, you're yeah. judging him on your human. Oh, do you think I'm being horribly? Well, how do we not know that he's saying it's a mirror or it's me? I can see myself. And I'm just saying hello. Yeah. Yeah. Is that am, am I being grotesquely judgmental, Tim? I think you're being anthropomorphic or well, something yes. anthropocentric <laughs> in the way that Ian... He seems Ian surprised. I, all I can say is that I don't want to yeah. say I'm being anthropomorphic here. He seems surprised. Yeah. He, I mean, he is acting in the manner of someone who doesn't think that's his reflection. But is that is that just... I'm looking at this all wrong, am I? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. He's, he's probably <laughs> surprised by how good he looks. He's a lovely looking thing. Uh, might be, yeah. why, why does this matter? Though? Just, just finally, uh, Tim, it, it is, does this lead us down a moral route to how we should start regarding animals, how we should regard our place in the world alongside them? Yeah, absolutely. I think it does. I mean, I think um, getting the right 
of our relationship with animals is one of the deepest problems about our conception of our place in the world. I mean, I think, but um, what it implies about whether we should eat them and so on. I refer back to Julian Virginia's oh, great yes. piece uh, from last year on on this. Um, well, let's leave it at that that, that, that point of uh, circularity. Yeah. Tim Crane, thank you very much okay. indeed. Thanks, Dick. Yeah, we, we don't need to get into vegetarianism again. Although, you know, you, well, you, you are the TLS foodie. <laughs> Cheese! I mean, and sh- I was sh- vegetarian yeah, for sh- a sh- long time. Sh- were you? Yes. I didn't know that. Why? What was the reason? Um, all the usual reasons. Oh, yeah. And now I, I, we don't want to get into this. Now I just only eat what I know. Oh, so, when so, I know where it's coming but that's from, good, and that it's, but does that, that's, is that not the? the and I also eat meat incredibly rarely, but cheese is a problem, as as we know. Is cheese always morally reprehensible? Uh, not always, but often. Oh really? So the, the production of I'm, I knew I'm new. Well, I mean, the dairy the dairy industry again. as a whole is very difficult <clears throat> to engage with. You, well, I mean, just look at what happened the other week when you know you, you went to a certain very well known. Uh, high street retailer thinking that you were buying ethically sourced milk and then yeah. it turned out that it was nothing of the sort. So yeah. so do you seek out ethical cheese? Not really, no. Not as much that's as you should problem. do? Not as much as I should do, yes. But that's uh, that's the, that's the my fault. That's where I fall down. I knew we'd I'm all right on meat and, I, and fish, but not I knew not so we'd get back on onto cheese. cheese. <laughs> this is just becoming a running theme of the show. It already has. It has. It's, it's dominating. <laughs> it's dominating everything. Sorry, let's stop it. Okay. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at MintMobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Next year will mark 70 years since the drawing of the line along the 38th parallel that led to the formation of two Korean republics, North and South. Most inhabitants of the peninsula, says a Korean-American author Min Jin Lee, cannot even remember living as one nation. Min Jin Lee has written a piece in this week's TLS exploring the literary fallout from that firm and fragile division, conquering how writers on both sides of the border continue to respond to it. 
She takes in three works of fiction, The Accusation by Bandy, the first work of fiction written by a North Korean author presumed still to be alive and living in the country, and two South Korean efforts, J.M. Lee's The Boy Who Escaped Paradise and Mun Jol Yi's Meeting With My Brother, which grapple in very different ways with the seemingly impenetrable mystery of North Korea. Min Jin Lee joins us on the phone now. And Min, there's a, there's a fourth non-fiction title that you consider in your piece, North Korea's Hidden Revolution by Jun Baek. I think to most of us in the West watching the news, it probably looks like North Korea's reinforcing its defences. So perhaps you could start by telling us about this volume. What, what's its its main thesis? Oh, Jun Baek's book is absolutely terrific as a primer because it's a public policy book. And it's not very academic, so it's highly approachable. And I think what's really smart about it is that she says something that most people don't know, which is that North Korea is a de facto capitalist country, which is porous and has information coming in from the West, primarily through USB sticks, which are sold on the black market. And I have to confess that even I was surprised by this, but the more I speak to people who are far more scholarly than I am about this subject, apparently this is true, that you can get anything in the black market in North Korea, and this economy is encouraged, and that's how it's sort of coming back in terms of having any money at all. So how much is is our view of North Korea a sort of caricature? Because we see this tubby, kind of silly despot who is constantly on our screens, almost as a figure of, of fun. I mean, we see him sort of firing missiles not very well and, and, and acting like a bullied child. And, and he's almost a figure of fun. And North Korea then itself it feels like a caricature of a despotic regime. Have we got it wrong? Do you think we mischaracterize the nation, generally speaking, in the West? Well, I think that's a very fair thing to raise because we have essentially a mascot-type person a very terrifying mascot type person. And I do agree that he is a despot and he is a regime that perpetrates terror on its own people primarily. And all the symbolic gestures that he makes, all the saber rattling is done for the benefit of his people. That said, the people of North Korea do not in any way resemble Kim Jong-un, a spoiled child who went, who was educated in the West, actually. And his mother is half Japanese. I don't know if you know that. And she comes from the area that I wrote about in my book, um, Pachinko. But what's more important is that he has all these influences of the West. He's completely cognizant and aware of American films. And although we make fun of him, we're forgetting the plight of 25 million people. And I think what was really interesting about reading the novel as well as Jian Beck's policy book, is that the people are forgotten because we're not allowed to see them. And her aim is is to kind of expand, to add nuance to our view of, of, of daily life in North Korea. Yes, absolutely. However, even her image of the people of North Korea is limited by the fact that she only has a sample of defectors. So there's 30,000 known defectors primarily who live in South Korea, but they're defectors throughout China. But again, we're only meeting people who are able to escape. So clearly they're hardy and strong and able to handle great um, adversity. Well, tell us about Bandy then, who is an, an, an anonymous author who mm-hmm. is actually bearing witness. This is direct testimony of people, of a person inside North Korea, which is theorists saying is a very rare thing in, indeed. What, what, explain how this manuscript exists and who the author is, I suppose, first. So Bandi is um, the pen name of a, a Korean author who lives in 
North Korea. He was able to smuggle this manuscript out when a relative of his defected to the South. He did not give her the manuscript directly because the defector would not take it. However, she said that when I get there safely, I will send someone to you who will collect the manuscript, and she does so. And when she does do that, he hands her this very long handwritten manuscript to a Chinese person who was able to come through to North Korea safely. He takes the manuscript, and then it is sent back to a Korean publisher who bravely published it, and it had almost no response in South Korea in terms of its impact. And it wasn't really until people in Europe took up this manuscript and thought of it as something important and then it became, um, I think it's published in 18 countries now. I mean, that's that's something that interests me as well. I mean, since Korean literature, as an outsider, it seems like it erupted over here and all of a sudden um, everything was being translated and, you know, obviously the Booker International win for Han Kang was very important in, in that. Has that changed the, the way that people are writing? I mean, in South Korea, because obviously we don't know that much about what's being written in North Korea, but has that, has that had a kind of a blowback effect at all? You know, it's really curious because I think it looks like an eruption, but it's been a very highly orchestrated move. There is something called the Korean Literature Translation Institute, which is almost like an arm of the government of South Korea, and they really believe that in order for South Korea to be taken very seriously as a nation, its art must come out, and they have supported international festivals. They have not quite lobbyists, but they have people who are proposing that Korean literature is very valid and important, and they've been making a very serious effort to share this. So when these books are coming out, it's because they have government support. I see. I, I took us away from Bandy, and I didn't, I didn't want to, actually, because I'd like to talk about him a little bit more if we can. What, what, what kind of stories does, does he tell us? Well, it's funny because Bandy is older, and his stories are dated. So his stories are dated to a certain period before 1989 almost. And what's really important is that he's really chronicling that era of North Korea when there was the greatest amount of starvation and suffering. And they are incredibly, amazingly powerful stories of witness. However, in terms of literature, I think that it might... I don't think it's fair to say that's representative of literature of Korea, the peninsula, because I think South Koreans are writing different kinds of things than Bondi's book, because that's all we have right now to compare. But what I loved about Bondi's accusation is just how human he portrays his characters. So we can easily forget the despot with the bad haircut. We can actually remember that there are real people who are in North Korea who are terrified and suffering. However, in contrast, if you look at Jiyun Beck's book, you wouldn't feel like you're terrified and suffering. So I think for me, as a Western person of ethnic Korean origin, I'm a little puzzled as to what is true. But I think what's more helpful is to remember that Bondi's stories were written about, you know, basically 25 years ago. Mm. And the two South Korean books, which take as a subject uh, of North Korea, what do they add or otherwise to our understanding? What perspective do they bring to bear? Um, Meeting with My Brother was published in 1994. It was just recently translated and available. So again, it's a dated text. However, it's a work of genius. I have to say, I can't recommend this book highly enough because it is a very smart meditation of what reunification looks like from the point of view of a South Korean author whose father actually defected to the North. So that's his Um, biography and 
it's considered his most autobiographical novel, and it's very, very slim. So if somebody wanted to think about reunification in a smart way, I would encourage him or her to read this book. As for J.M. Lee's book, it is completely unlike anything I've written, read in a very long time because it's very mocking. It's a very mocking, funny book, and it's meant to be a very quick read, and it's almost like a popular I wouldn't say thriller, but it has that kind of aspect of a whodunit. And who is it? Who does it mock? Does it mock the regime, or does it just mock, mock um, equal opportunity fashion the characters it's, it's portraying? It mocks everybody. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like my sounds sort, great. Say, sounds like my sort of book. And how, as we, I mean, as we're talking about South Korea, I mean South Korean writers now. How does South Korea figure in the literature? I mean, how free are the writers there? I mean, are they able to address more or less without challenge the darkness of their own recent history, you know, dictatorship and hardship, or how does that work? I think I'm very pleased to announce that South Korea is really advancing as a democracy, as as given evidence by the fact that the recent president is in jail right now, and she'll be sentenced for a very long time. And the fact that we've had a very lovely revolution on the streets by the South Korean people, and there has been a peaceful transfer of power. So in terms of freedom of press, it's probably the best it's ever been in the history of Korea, which is 5,000 years. So I think it's terrific. I think it's absolutely terrific. And even though it may seem very dismal to have a corrupt president, I think it's very good when a dismal, corrupt president is put into jail and then you can have a new president. Yeah, we've, We've got a longer piece, actually, alongside it, which is reflecting on how Korea has changed in the Western imagination. So even when it had the Olympics back in the 80s, people were sort of frightened of, of South Korea. And now it's held up as a bit of an as an exemplum of how to have an interventionist uh, capitalist society. You know, the government controls a bit of the, of, of the capitalist economy, but does so in a generally benevolent way. It's got an education system which has its problems, but produces very well-educated children. It's become more of a thing to be admired than feared over the last 30 years. Well, I think it's always funny when we fear countries that seem somewhat successful because South Korea clearly has many troubles of its own, but I do agree with you that it's made certain progress because that table system, which is the economic partnership between the government and the and then in industries that it supports, which what we're really seeing right now is all the corruption that has occurred as a result of all these partnerships. And I think the illumination on the darkness of all that corruption is really quite a sign of democracy advancing in South Korea, which I find personally exciting. Lovely. Well, listen, Min, thank you so much for for joining us and thank you for for bringing together all of these uh, very different books. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's fascinating because I've been doing a lot of reading about education and the education system in Korea is, is... it's not necessarily very laudable, actually, but it produces, in the same way as Singapore, Korea decided 20 years ago, its major resource was its people. It mm. wasn't mass- massively blessed with natural resources, and therefore it has to absolutely focus all its attention on producing brilliant people who can go on to develop technologies, who can go on to develop the economy. Mm. And it has done it. I yeah. mean, it. It has turned into a massive global success story on the back of, of that, having been this slightly strange island that people... You know, in, in the other piece we, we have in the paper talks about, you know, people just thought about eating dogs and repression were the two sort of central metaphors of, of South Korea. Now you think of skyscrapers and, and tech companies, don't you? Is it similar to what, what goes on in China in terms of the education it's system? Is, it's basically as intense as China. What's very different is uh, virtually everyone uses private tutors. And so there's a shadow education uh, system in Korea worth something like $18 billion a year where kids come out of school and then they're placed in, in tutoring schools 
till 10 at night. God. And uh, they take the final exam so seriously, they, they ground the plane so there's no one can distract you in the final exams. It's oh an incredible God. pressure cooker. And there's, a, there's, I mean, there's stories, there's actually a government department, Hagwons are the name of these tutorial places. There's a government department which has to send out government agents who are responding to tips to make sure these schools close at 10.30 at night. Because otherwise the kids stay there till two in the morning. So the government knock send agents intervenes to, knock on, to save yeah, to save them from themselves. Yeah, to knock on the door. And if there's if if they find a school, an illicit school going on after hours, yeah. they find the people and yeah. they pay rewards to agents to tell them to, as informers. It's extraordinary. But the, wow. so it's not laud like I said, it's not a laudable system, but they value But the essential thing is that they value the the, the next generation yeah, and, and, value and, teachers. and exactly value education above all else and, but they've corrupted it in a sort of slightly weird yeah, way yeah taking but, it a bit far but, yeah but there's a principle <laughs> somewhere between that and what we have in this country maybe. yeah exactly but <laughs> it would be good and what could and maybe north korea could change i mean it's an interesting prospect what mm. what could ever happen if if a tyrant departs is there an opportunity for for something well that's what's so interesting um in the other piece that we have because it, it shows how reunification is is perhaps not the dream that everyone thinks it is yeah whose dream is it is an interesting well exactly that's all we have time for this week before we hear from alistair gray our thanks go to minjin lee and to tim the brain crane do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper which is filled with philosophical musings plus an argument against expertise look away now michael gove and a look into the world of jane welsh carlisle do tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts and pictures of cheese. And please do review us on iTunes. Next week, we are publishing an essay from the great Martin Scorsese on filmmaking. And so we'll do our best to lure him onto the podcast. But whatever happens, we will be talking film and a bit of biography, as well as commemorating the anniversary of the Israeli occupation with writer Asaf Gavron. But before we go, we shall hear a poem by Alastair Gray, the great Scottish artist and writer, not only of the apocal novel Lanark, but also strange and compelling short stories and poems too. This week's paper has a poem entitled From Vert Doré by Gérard de Nerval. So we'll hear from Alastair and then the poem. From Thea and from me, until next week, goodbye. It's uh, a poem that strikes me as... Uh a warning against fracking, for instance. I find it appeals to me because it suggests the doctrine of panspermia, the notion that life is to be found in everything. The Golden Verse by Gerard de Nerval, which is introduced by a quotation from Pythagoras, all things are sentient. Free-thinking man, how can you still believe with life exuberant in everything? Intelligence presides in you alone. In all things bright and dark, a god resides, since shuttered eyes abide in rock and stone. The forces you command are sources too of mineral and meteor and star, which does not mean the universe and you must share one aim. Within Earth's deepest zone, a silent ear registers all you do. Respect the souls in herb and tree and beast, fearing to shake essential sentience loose by putting matter to ignoble use.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.